name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. For there's no one like the Lord. Bless his holy name. For he is a good God, a great God, and greatly to be praised. Amen, amen. I would ask that you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews. That's the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 25, make it verses 24 through 25. Book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by simply saying, Jesus. Jesus. And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day dawning. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. On last Wednesday, January 6th, just a little over 40,000 people descended upon Washington, D.C. They were there to air their grievances over their grievances and their disappointment over the last election. Now, the right of public assembly and public protest is one of the bedrocks of our Constitution and is guaranteed to us as a basic right meeting together to share our collective joys and our cumulative sorrows is healthy when it's done in an orderly manner and when it's observant of the rights and the rules of the law. Passionate advocacy for a position is not a vice, but it is a virtue if your motives and your manners are true. There's a tale that was told about a great English actor, MacGreedy. He was speaking to an eminent pastor who wanted to ask him a question. The pastor said, I want you to explain something to me, MacGreedy. And MacGreedy said, you know, I don't know if I can explain anything to a pastor. The pastor said, what is the reason for the difference between you and I. You appear before crowds night after night, giving them fiction, and crowds come wherever you are. I am preaching the essential, unchangeable truths of the gospel, and I'm not getting any crowds at all. Matt Greedy's answer was quite simple. He said, I can tell you the difference, Pastor. Because of my passion, 
I present fiction as though it was truth, and you present truth as though it was fiction. As a pastor and a preacher, I have but one passion, and that is Jesus Christ, who is holy. But when passion is perverted and fueled by fiction, it becomes fractious. And then you can take a crowd and turn it into a mob, and then a mob brings chaos. The Bible clearly teaches us that God is what? Not the author of confusion, but of peace. We need to pray for our nation, a nation that on one hand suppresses the assembly of the righteous due to health concerns, but supports the assembly of the riotous. We see in Acts chapter 2, the very birthday of the church, where the Holy Spirit has descended upon 120 believers who are assembled in the upper room. We see the growth of the infant church. We see here on the day of Pentecost about 3,000 people believed the gospel, repented of their sins, and were baptized as followers of Christ Jesus. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, And then the last sentence of this passage says this, when you go down to Acts 2 and 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want you to notice the important point here. God did not add people to the church without first saving them. And God will not save them and not provide a church for them. And when you think about this, there's an organic union there of personal salvation and church membership, which is the unchanging pattern that we see throughout the whole New Testament. Although we look at every area of church history, biblical Christianity, there's always been a high view of church and church attendance associated with it. My point here is that the church of Jesus Christ, its membership and its attendance is essential. Now I know we live in a day and a time where many believers and unbelievers question the necessity, question the relevance, question the importance of the local church. We live in a time where, in our generation, they've created a new category that would have never sufficed in biblical and historical Christianity, this idea of unchurched Christians. When you look back at the great church fathers like Scipion, the father and the bishop of the early church, who once said these words, outside of the church, there is no salvation. Outside of the church, there is no salvation. So, Pastor, what does that mean? Who needs the church? Simply, everyone who wants to be saved needs the church. The church of Jesus Christ is essential. 
And it doesn't mean that just by the means of church membership, by the means of church attendance and participation, you are saved. God forgives our sins by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Jesus Christ alone, explained in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. But God has made the church the steward and the vehicle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So a person can be a church member without being a Christian, but a person cannot be a Christian without being a church member. They cannot be a healthy, growing, fruitful Christian without being a participating member of a local church. Christian assembly is a biblical requirement for Christians. This morning in the time that we have together, we're going to discuss the proposition of our Christian commitment and we're going to come to the conclusion that assembly is required for those who want to follow Christ. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, may the very words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be found acceptable in your sight. For you are my Lord and my Redeemer. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. You know, first of all, I think we have to recognize that our assembly is required for the very confession of salvation. When we look at this epistle from the author of Hebrews, and we see who he's writing to, he's writing to a group of at-risk Jewish Christians that have just come over from Judaism, and they're being tempted now to turn away from Christ because of severe persecution for those who are still in Judaism, and they're trying to win them back over. We see that the author of Hebrews is writing them a letter here to challenge them to persevere in their faith. So how is he doing this, Pastor? He's doing this by emphasizing just one word, the word better. He wants them to know that now that they're in Jesus Christ, they're in a better system than they were when they were in Judaism. Look at chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and what do we see all the way through Hebrews? He's telling us that the Lord Jesus is a better high priest, that he's a better sacrifice, that Jesus is a better covenant, that Jesus is a better promise, that Jesus is a better inheritance, that he's better than the angels, that he's better than Moses, that he's better than the Levitical priesthood, that he's better than any blood of bulls and calves or the ashes of a heifer. Jesus Christ is just better. And on the basis of the work and the person of Christ Jesus, the author of Hebrews is calling each and every one of us to do what? To hold fast to Christ. He's given us three commands that really start in Hebrews 10 verses 22 think about this. He says the first command relates this way. He uses these two words repeatedly to remind us, let us. Verse 22 says, let us. 
draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Then he takes us to verse 23, second command, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without what? Wavering, for he who promised it is faithful. Third command, we see it, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting together as some has become in the habit, but encouraging one another that we might see as the day draws near. So what do you say to a person who's ready to give up on Jesus? You tell them they need to draw closer to Jesus. During this pandemic, many people seemingly have just given up on Jesus. They think that Jesus can't save or Jesus can't protect, but they are able to protect themselves. They're able to save themselves. They are able to keep themselves in good health. Do we not understand that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts? Do we not understand that God could be using this pandemic in two ways to address two different concerns and two different audiences? For an unbelieving world, God could be using this pandemic to show them the fruitfulness of their ways, to show them the ridiculousness of their efforts to protect themselves or even to provide for themselves without the saving grace of Christ in their lives. For us who trust in Christ, for us who believe in Christ, he could be saying to us that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God and hearing the word of God means not neglecting the assembly of the saints for the church is essential. God could be taking away all of the things that we use as excuses and we said clutter up our lives so that we can't spend time with God. Well, he's taking them all away. What are you doing with your time now? You don't have an excuse anymore. The time has been set aside that we might draw nearer to God. Chapter 10 of Hebrews divinely inspires us and gives us instructions for those who are ready to throw in the towel. Specifically, when we deal with the text that's before us this morning, it teaches us to commit ourselves to a local assembly of believers. That means that we're going to have to stop jumping around from church to church and hiding behind the lie that God has told us to do so. We are to find a local church and then submit to his authority, submit to his leadership for our accountability, that we must find a local church, that we might have spiritual covering, and that we might be responsible for having a part in growing the kingdom of God. Now, active church membership alone will not preserve your faith. I think it's clear in verses 26 and 27 in chapter 10 of Hebrews 
when the author tells us, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What is this, Pastor? This is a warning about apostasy. We should recognize that we are really in Christ Jesus, and Christ Jesus is in us, that we will never lose our salvation. God perseveres and preserves his gracious, and they're assured to true believers that we are eternally secure which means we will never fall away. Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. That means that we will endure to the end. But listen to me, the perseverance of the saints is not only tied to the perseverance of the saints, it's also tied to the partnership of the saints, which includes church membership, corporate worship, Christian fellowship. They're all primary means in which God preserves his grace and sustains us as true believers. Now, I'm totally aware that this refutes those who will say that the church has nothing to do with my salvation. The very fact is just the opposite. The church has everything to do with your salvation. 1 Timothy 3.15 Paul speaking says this, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. The pillar and the foundation of a building is that which holds it up. If the foundation gives or the pillars fall, the building will what? Not stand. Likewise, the church is a pillar and the foundation of truth. Our faith in the truth of the gospel will not stand without his church constantly promoting it, constantly piercing our hearts and placing it in our very souls. Psalm 11 and 3 says this, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? I think it was a William Willimon that once says, the gospel does not make sense without the church that makes it make sense. There's a confession of salvation that is required and comes only through Christian assembly. You know, there's been a lot of talk about this virus, but yet there's another virus that I see out there. It's called Morbus Salbopticus. It's called, in layman's terms, Sunday morning sickness, or what we used to call Saturday night fever. The symptoms are quite interesting. It doesn't interfere with the appetite of the eyes because those who have contracted it can still read the Sunday newspaper without any pain and they can still use their eyes to observe the coach play and overcome their fatigue for the lack of Christian fellowship. 
The only symptom that seems to be overwhelming is that they can't get up and go to church. It's strange that they don't feel this way until late, late Sunday night or rather Saturday night when they're asleep. But by the time morning hits, they can't see how they can move out of bed. It never lasts longer than 24 hours because Monday morning the patient seems to be fully recovering and able to go to work. But it's reoccurring because it strikes again the next Sunday and if you allow it to happen week after week after week, it becomes chronic. I'm telling you the only way to obtain a vaccine against this is to come and ask the great physician to heal you. Heal you of this dreaded disease that will bring you closer to death than anything else. Because assembly is required because the church is essential. Assembly is required for the very community of the saints. Sandy and I used to live in California. Did you know that, and this would be more in Northern California, did you know that the California redwood trees are the tallest and the oldest trees in the world? They stand hundreds of feet high, and some of them are said to be over 2,500 years old. Now, if you know anything about trees, you would think, my goodness, these redwood trees must have a tremendous root system that reaches deep and down into the earth. But compared to other trees, the redwood trees do not have any more roots and they don't go any deeper. The redwood trees are able to stand and they have stood for centuries because their roots are intertwined and interwoven with one another. So when the wind blows against these trees, the redwoods are able to stand because they're linked and locked to each other. They're able to hold one another up. This is what the church does as being a community. When we are together, we are able to stand against the storms of life and the assaults upon our faith. Christianity was never to be a lone ranger religion. We must hold each other up because the church is essential. Every Sunday we repeat the Apostles' Creed and it says, the communion of the saints. This works on a two-tier level. First, there's the internal disposition and the external demonstration of Christian fellowship I think that is summarized in verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 10 when it says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now when we speak of this internal disposition of Christian fellowship, katanoeo means, it's the word they're using here, the verb consider. Consider means to perceive clearly, to understand fully, to consider closely. It's the same word that is in Hebrews 3 and 1 when it says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share our heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest 
of our confession. You must set your minds on the person and the work of Jesus Christ that he has completed on the cross, that our faith will be strong, that our faith will be stable, that our faith will be secure. This text teaches us, again, using the same verb, it goes on when it speaks about continue. It gives us grammatical emphasis that denotes a continual and repeated action. So what it's really saying, let us constantly consider one another. Just as we are to be always thinking about Jesus. We're to be always thinking about one another. The important point here is that we are a community and Christian fellowship. We are a family. Christian fellowship is primarily essential and ultimately an internal reality. It's not geographic. It's not institutional. It's not an organization. It's organic. You can't get the same thing from Facebook or Zoom or Twitter or Instagram. Our fellowship is an internal disposition of care, concern, and compassion for one another. And it results in works and actions that express the love that we have for Jesus Christ and the love that we have for one another. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love does not abide in death. Whoever does not love abides in death. To abide means to what? To live. True Christian love will not only lead you to attend and participate in corporate worship, it will lead you also to prayerfully consider the needs, the growth, the concerns of other brothers and sisters in Christ when you are not physically together. Now, I know I talk to people all the time. They want to rebuke me. They say, well, I read Christian books. I watch religious television. I listen to tapes and CDs. Doesn't that count? No. But don't get me, don't misunderstand me. Those things are helpful supplements by which you receive blessings from Christianity. However, if you're able to get up and get out, you must make sure that supplements for corporate worships do not become substitutes for corporate worship. Because your fellowship with God can never be just self-centered. This is not a long-ranger relationship. Proverbs 18 and 1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own. He breaks out against all sound judgment. 1 Corinthians 10, 24. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Philippians 2 and 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. So that kind of wraps up or summarizes the internal disposition 
of our Christian fellowship, but there's an external demonstration of our Christian fellowship that we must also be concerned about. The author of Hebrews gives us a command here, consider one another. And then 24 says, to stir up one another to love and good works. The church is marked by love and good works. Every Christian is called to love and do good works. But we cannot forgive this calling on our own. We need each other and we need to stir one another up to provide love and good works throughout the community. I think it's in King James, this word stir up will be provoke. And then in the NS, NASB, it probably would be stimulate. In the NIV, it'll be spur. But in our ESV, it is to stir up. This word is where we get the Greek word here, parasismos, speaks about a certain outbreak of sickness, symptoms, or spasms. It's used mostly throughout the Bible in the connotation where it is a negative word. It's an, a word that you would use in, instead of using an irritant or being exasperated, okay? In fact, most times it's used in the New Testament, it's used in a negative way. You remember Acts 15 and 39, where there's a concern between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. And it says, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from one another. So Luke is saying that there became an irritation, there became an exasperation between Paul and Barnabas that separated them. But the way it's used in Hebrews is saying that this same irritant should bring us closer together for love and good works. Proverbs 27 and 17 says this, Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. Have you ever sharpened a knife? Do you sharpen a knife by hugging it, caressing it, or pampering it? Or do you get another piece of stone or metal and you rub it against it the wrong way? Likewise, true Christian friends are the ones that don't always agree with you, don't always co-sign to your agenda, don't always stay out of your way. They're the ones that make you better because they rub against you. They're the ones that put a supportive arm around you as well as a scolding finger in your face when you are not following the commands of Scripture. We need both comfort and tender love, and we also need the confrontation of tough love when we need to be rebuked and we're out of order. That means that we must love one another enough to stir us up for love and to do good works. That means we got to grow up. 
We've got to be, we got to grow up and be tough enough to let someone speak into our lives, even if we don't want to hear it, even and most especially if it's really a true trait about us that we don't want to recognize. Because what do we do? We rob ourselves of healing. Because we, we conceal that that we dislike about ourselves the most, and we project what we dislike about ourselves the most on other people who have similar traits. You know, football has been described as 21 men on a field in desperate need of rest being watched by over 22,000 people in desperate need of exercise. (laughs) The sad fact is that is the way the church operates. This praise team is here lifting up the name of the Lord. They're not here to give you a concert. That is not their concern. Their concern is the bring in to evoke the very presence of the Holy Spirit that it might enter our lives, that it might allow us to listen to the word in a way that will put a seed in us and have a harvest in our heart. Corporate worship is not a spectator sport where you just show up, receive the ministry of others, give an offering, say hey to a couple people, and leave. Corporate worship is supposed to be three-dimensional. God blesses us. We bless God, and then we bless one another. We stir up one another in love to do good works. That's why the assembly is essential because assembly is required to conform us to the very commands of Scripture. What does verse 25 teach us here? If we are a follower of Christ, then there should our presence and participation in corporate worship is mandatory. Our presence is essential. Now, if you're going to ask me right off the cuff, you know, Pastor, what's the most direct verse that commands church attendance. Yeah, I'll probably go to Hebrews 10.25. But you know, the truth of the matter here is this verse doesn't technically command that we go to church. It commands that we do not forsake the assembly of church. It already believes that we have already recognized the benefits of being there so we and we found value in it so we should be only reminded not to forsake it. This word neglecting is emphatic here. It's intense here. It means the total abandonment or the utter forsaking of something. You see this term in what Matthew 27, 46, Mark 15, 34. You hear Jesus cry out, Eli, Eli, some of the botany, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see Paul speak about it in 2 Corinthians 4 and 9 when he says, uh, describes himself as being persecuted but not forsaken. 
And then in Hebrews 13 and 5, there's a promise that's given to each and every one of us as believers in Christ. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you recognize that God turned his back on his only begotten son on the cross because he cannot look at sin? He he forsook Jesus that he would never forsake us. When we recognize that every Christian should be marked present when the body of Christ assembles on the Lord's day. This corporate worship sounds legalistic to some, impractical to others. But verse 25b, Hebrews 10, 25b tells us, as is the habit of some. During this time, some people had already started missing meetings. They had started to be found in the habitual absence, which became customary to them. But even in this, now remember what they were facing. They were facing great persecution because of their faith in Christ Jesus. Their very lives were on the line. But does the scripture tell them to just stay home and hide? He says, no, don't neglect the assembly. People are being martyred. And they're saying, don't forsake, neglect the assembly. God gives them no excuse. Does this mean that I should attend every meeting, function, and service that the church holds? No. But if you're absent and others do not know where you are, but are not surprised by your absence, you are probably out of the will of God. If you can miss church without being missed at church, something is missing. If you can miss church without missing church, something is wrong. There was an elderly saint once who had lost his hearing and his sight, all that had grown dim just because of age. But he never stopped attending church. One intrigued individual stopped him on the way back to the fellowship table and asked him a question. Why do you continue to attend church when you can barely see or hear? What's going on with you? The old man replied, I want to show everybody whose side I'm on. Your presence in corporate worship ought to show not only an unbelieving world from the subdivision you just drove out of, but a believing world, the place that you just walked into, whose side that you're on. Your presence ought to show neighbors and co-workers whose side you're on. Your principles and powers in Christ Jesus should show the adversaries of Christ Jesus in the unseen realm whose side you're on. Participation in the church is essential. He goes on, not neglecting to meet together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another. And note the contrast there between not showing up 
and showing up. The contrast is between not neglecting the meeting and going to the meeting not only to receive encouragement yourself, but to what? Encourage others. Your participation is important. It's essential. But you know, you can even be in the meeting and still neglect the meeting. You can neglect and disrespect the meeting when you show up later, you leave early. You can neglect and disrespect the meeting when you go to church and hang out on the outside instead of coming in. You neglect and disrespect the meeting when you show up with a bad attitude. You disrespect and neglect the assembly when you are inhospitable, critical, irreverent. When you neglect and disrespect the meeting, when you spend your time in the service sleeping, walking, talking, passing notes, or doing something on your phone, anything that distracts from the word of God. God demands your presence, and believe me, God demands that you are in the moment. Be in the moment. You don't want to be like some ecclesiastical hitchhiker. You know, a hitchhiker puts out his thumbs and says, okay, I need a ride. But I want you to buy the car. I want you to pay for the repairs of your car. I want you to upkeep the insurance on the car. I want you to keep it full with gas. I'll ride with you. But if you have an accident, you're on your own. I may even sue you. See, that's the way people treat the church. I'm here to worship with you. I'll serve for a bit. Maybe I'll pray. But I'm just here for the ride. If you do something to criticize me or complain, I'll ultimately bail out, put my thumb out, and find another person to ride with. You know... It's always interesting when you drive past churches and see their, you know, their signs outside. You know, they always have some little catchy phrase or something. In many churches, you will see, enter to worship, depart to serve. I, I'm going to say that it's a false dichotomy. We're to enter to worship and to serve, and we're to leave to continue to worship and to serve. It's because the church is essential, guys. Assembly is required because of the coming of our Savior. In every congregation, there are those who believe that the church meets together too much. Usually coming from a carnal mindset, a fleshly dominated, self-centered point of view. The author here says, not neglecting to meet together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day dawning near. God says that we need to assemble even the more than we do so that we might encourage one another, especially when we see the day. Look, he says, capital D, that is judgment, the day drawing near. Anything happened in the last couple of days that you think the day may be coming a little closer than you thought? Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. 
but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin. When is the last time any of us left the house, got halfway down the street, panicked because we left our cell phone at home? What did we do? We immediately turned around to make sure where that phone is. I am also. Just a devotion and the ministry of our cell phones that are so important to us. But would we change our direction if we had another appointment that conflicts with our assembly as a saint of Jesus Christ? You know, 66% of Americans tell me that they believe Jesus Christ will return to earth one day. Yet one-third of those people never attend church. That is a blatant contradiction. The imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ is a biblical motivation to be found, to be faithful to his assembly. We talked about it last week. This word assembly is the same word as ecclesia, which means church. The closer that the Lord's return gets, the closer we should long to be in his word. Long to know more and more about him. Long to receive strength, to persevere. Because everything that's going to happen is going to happen. Because God is sovereign. But yet, as we can also can believe that promise, we can believe that he who told us in this world you will have trials and tribulations, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. This does, you know, this doesn't work if you don't buy into it all. Because things are going to happen day in and day out. You will see the sinfulness of sin and the foolishness of those that you held near. The only constant in that is Jesus is true and faithful in all that he does. So to this word encourage means to exhort, means to be called alongside of, to recognize the same thing as Jesus being our paraclete, you know, the Holy Spirit being our paraclete which means he's our advocate to the Father. And that he, he says, you should be happy. We're talking about John 15, 16. You should be happy that I'm going back to the Father because if I go back, then the helper can come. The comforter. The one that is your advocate. So when we recognize that we are the ecclesia, that we are the assembly, that we are the called out ones, called out from a world. We're in the world, but not of the world. And we're called out as a local body of believers to show the way out of darkness, to be lights that are on a hill, to show people who are in darkness the way 
to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot separate a believer from the local church. God will clearly always be present in the life of a believer and make them be participant, uh, participatory in the local church. We are to be the agents of his grace. 1 Corinthians 11, 18 through 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Don't worry about the tares and the wheat coming together because God sees all and he knows all. And he's going to send his own harvesters that will tear out the tares and, and protect the wheat, those that are truly his, those who are collectively his church. So the church, my friends, shows us a way to salvation. The church is our family, is our community. The church reveals to us the meaning of the commands of Scripture. The church reminds us constantly of the imminent coming of our Savior. And the church is still and always will be the most essential thing to our lives. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, let us recognize, let us search deeply in our hearts like never before. Let us be convicted and let us be even more committed. We can't change what we've done, but we can always do better. So Lord, let us recognize what a fellowship, what a joy divine the local church is and how you've created this body of believers to sharpen one another, to provoke one another to love and good works, to build up in us a stronger and living faith, to comfort us as we deal with the wiles of the devil outside in the secular world. Lord, Show us your glory. Give us a double portion and revival of your spirit within us. Your spirit is in us or we're not yours. But Lord, increase its capacity that it is the controlling dynamic of our lives. It is in the precious name of your son and our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, amen.